0: I mean, it, it really makes you wonder what the heck is going on out there that there's just these, um, these celestial bodies that it, one of their primary uh, functions, I guess you could say, is to just cook and breed uh, genetic material and metals and then just come in within a big, huge, crazy, awe-inspiring, terrifying display, um, deliver it onto a planet
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Matters. Today, we will continue our discussion of the show a couple weeks ago on Randall Carlson's work on the Holy Grail, as well as tie together some threads that we've been getting in and out of for the duration of the time we've been on YouTube, actually. We're going to bring in some stuff from the first uploads we made to YouTube, and then some shows that we've done since then, and kind of just try to tie together some of those ideas into a bigger picture. So this will include some stuff um, from last week's show, too, a continuation of the stuff on Sufism and Rumi, um, and tying that in to the direction we'll go based on Carlson's work. Because one of the things that we didn't really get into in much detail or at all when we discussed Carlson's Grail series was the some of the ideas he brings in t- into the discussion on the Holy Grail and his interpretation of that relating it to cometary bombardments and things of that sort, and that is the idea of directed panspermia. Um, we did talk about the presence of pre-organic compounds in comets and meteorites that get deposited into Earth um, in those close encounters or full-on encounters with uh, those heavenly bodies. Um, but we didn't really get into this idea of cosmic panspermia because one of the things he mentions is it was well until the idea was raised in the 20th century, I believe, was the first time it was raised. Um, you know, it had, no one had really thought of things in that manner before. The idea that the precursors to life could be could have come from the skies, essentially from space, and but since those ideas were first floated, there's been a lot. of, more research done and a lot more evidence to show that this may in fact be the case that there are like interstellar clouds of preorganic materials and like mixed in with the gases and which come in, which like basically hijack or, or ride on meteorites and comets they've found. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. In one of the, um, one of the meteorites that, um, I can't remember what year it fell, but it was in the last several decades they discovered, um, they they were able to find the site really quickly, and they found something like 74 different amino acids in the material deposited by this, along with this meteorite, and only, only a certain number of which are actually present in life. So just this kind of smorgasbord of amino acids, which are one of the fundamental building blocks of life as we know it,
2: So just as a, just to round that out a little bit, I think it was something like 53 amino acids or about two thirds of, of what was discovered were, uh, were completely unknown to the scientists who were looking at the material, Mm -hmm. which suggested uh, to them that there was this whole other wealth of biological, you know, life creating material Mm -hmm. that. You know, in addition to all of the other substances that are known to exist on uh, asteroids, fireballs, and and meteors, is is biological, is somehow sustained uh, and living within this uh, the, these structures that that come and and bombard uh, the planet Earth from time to time. It's yeah. really a, an amazing discovery.
1: Yeah, and that says something about the the nature of. The building blocks of life itself. Um, this gets back to some of our discussions on evolution and intelligent design. But if you if you look at this, these materials, you've got the same the same sort of phenomenon with uh, the the um, the building blocks of DNA. You know, we have four letters that make up our DNA four of these tiny little um, you know chemical compounds that combine in 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 pairs and in sequence to you know create life as we know it. But those are not the only possible um, letters, you know, so to speak, to make that can make up DNA. In fact, scientists have created basically artificial um, an artificial alphabet that they can then inject into DNA to make it to, to basically give an an extra layer or an extra an extra number of letters to the code. For instance, so that, and those function in DNA. They can fit in there, and then they can then, they can then be programmed to to um, you know create the amino acid chains that make up proteins and things of that sort. So what we see is it's it's as if there is a um, or multiple alphabets out there in the world of chemical compounds, and then life as we know it is a selection of those compounds. Um, it could be an arbitrary or a or an, an intelligently chosen set of those compounds. Maybe they were the only ones available. Maybe there's something particular about those ones. But for what for what, for whatever reason, the building blocks that compose life on planet Earth as we know it are this kind of a limited set out of the out of the wider set of possible compounds. So there's some kind of some kind of mystery involved there. Um, but on the subject getting back to the, the subject of the actual things that we find in space, I just listened to one of Randall Carlson's latest podcasts. I think it was episode 26 of the Cosmographia series. So if you go to his YouTube channel or just search Cosmographia with a K. Um, you can find this episode where he's talking about these sorts of things uh, not in relation to the Grail but strictly just the, the science of these organic and organic and pre-organic um, compounds that are that can be found in um, well in space and and which can hitch a ride on um, various interplanetary spaceships otherwise known as you know comets and meteors and things of that sort and one of the things he's that they the because he does these podcasts with a whole team of guys. One of the things that they said was that um, the Serpent Brothers, two of the guys that uh, have their own podcast, had interviewed Chandra Rickman-Singa. I, I can't remember how exactly he his last name. He is one of the the guys that first came up with this idea and developed it. And I believe in 1979, they were talking about a book he wrote. Um, I wasn't familiar with it, but I think it's called like Diseases from Space or something like that. And And so he was one of the first to propose that a lot of... Um, viruses and pandemic materials actually come from outer space. Um, this gets back to the book that uh, we mentioned during our Holy Grail show, um, New Light on the Black Death by Mike Bailey, where he proposed that the Black Death was a similar phenomenon. But one of the things that they said in relation to this interview that they did with him was that there there, there were some studies done in like kind of like high-altitude balloon studies where they tested the atmosphere and found what was in there and they came to the conclusion that something like f- some huge amount like tons and tons and tons I-, I believe the figure billion was thrown out there of material of viruses of viral material is like in the atmosphere and comes to earth like every year so there's there's just this huge amount of viruses in the atmosphere that can stay up there for years but that are regularly deposited onto the earth and um, for whatever reason, because of the, the 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 currents in the atmosphere, the way that the 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 atmosphere moves and and the the process of it, they seem to deposit more in china and that 's why a lot of um, like new viruses and pandemics have their origin in China, but not just china so not only in the atmosphere but in space there, it seems like it 's just teeming with this all of this kind of weird stuff this pre organic material that is, um, hitching a ride from here to there. Like, um, if there's a cometary bombardment or a meteorite, um, bombardment on a planet, it might eject some of the material on that planet into space, which then travels and then can find its way to another planet. And that's how, or one of the possible, one of the possible means by which there exists on earth um, like fragments of Mars, for instance, Martian meteorites and Martian material. is it, It's made its way here somehow. That's one of the possible ways that it's gotten here. But not only from the inner solar system, but potentially from other solar systems and who knows where. And that this just seems to be part of the, like an unacknowledged factor of the makeup of space itself, that there is all this stuff just flitting about and hanging up there and traveling and that it may play an important role in the origins of life. And this is what Carlson brings up in his Grail series, the idea that it was, in his mind it seems to me, it was probably some kind of bombardment of the planet that brought the necessary ingredients to make the first life forms, like we saw a couple weeks ago in the stories of the... Um, the blood rain, you know, right. the rains of blood. That there are these actual, like, primitive microorganisms that seem to be in these rains of blood, associated with fireballs and, and you know, um, um, airburst phenomena and things, you know, uh, comet fragments or meteorites exploding in the atmosphere and then injecting all of this material, all of these organisms or you know, chemistry into the atmosphere that just that then rains down um, onto the earth so that perhaps the way that life started on Earth wasn't as the a lot of theorists propose, as in like a abiogenesis, where all the stuff was already there, and then just through some weird chemical process that we don't understand yet, it just kind of magically clumped together to form like a, a cell membrane and DNA and proteins that then managed to... Work to create this self-replicating organism, um, that the material had to come from somewhere else, and that so in a sense it was partially already formed, but that still doesn't answer. Well, there's a few questions involved there, and it doesn't answer all the questions. Um, so, for instance, how was this material put together? Could could you just take stuff from space, and would that be enough to just get the life process started? Um, perhaps if there was like a, a viable life form. Like like a single cell a single celled life form that managed to you know deposit itself onto Earth perhaps that would be able to jumpstart the process but if it was just raw materials there's still you know you're still lacking something to actually put them together because like we know from our previous shows on evolution and intelligent design there there's a, a huge step to jump b- between those two states. Of that matter to go from the raw materials to an actually functioning cell a functioning organism Mm -hmm. is just mind-bogglingly unlikely and complex
2: well just to uh, backtrack a little bit on this whole idea of intelligent design uh, when we're thinking about cells and the incredible amounts of information that they contain uh, the integral workings of these molecular machines that That all have to work together, and the high improbability of some random randomly mutating happy accident of things converging to just make a functioning cell at the very least is it really is a very strong argument for the idea that there is some intelligence there is some higher uh, injection of information that has been introduced into the world of physical matter so i was thinking of carlson's work in comparison to everything we've been discussing with intelligent design in particular and trying to reconcile the two as you say harrison because there is this it if if there is some element of design of information being introduced by various asteroids meteors and and other near earth objects how do we reconcile that introduction of information into the earth environment with what may have already been existing prior to this this introduction of the the red rain of the various viruses that are known to have followed in the, uh, the reigning of the Red Rain uh, and, and all of that. Is it that, is that there is uh, some even more complex uh, question to be asked about how the, the universe propagates life and, and how new life forms are introduced to already created life forms and, and maybe alter it. Uh, Some of that seems to be answered in the Tunguska event in Russia of 1908, where that gigantic uh, structure created this incredible impact over millions of trees, over Mm -hmm. large uh, swaths of land.
1: Yeah, the size of uh, Atlanta. That was in one of Carlson's podcasts. He overlaid some images. The size of the affected zone over Tunguska like the size of the the damage that was done by the explosion was the size of the of Atlanta and the ring road you know that goes around Atlanta so that was so if Tunguska would have if the explosion would have happened over Atlanta today it would have destroyed the entire city
2: yes and because it was such a remote area Mm -hmm. that was not well populated uh, we we do have records of it. We do have scientists that have looked at the impact, uh, at least in the atmosphere above the region, and something that they've noticed was that there were actual genetic changes to a lot of the plant life in the area, some of them for good and some of them for bad. Um, in other words, there was some element of degradation in, in their in their structure, and in, and in some cases there seemed to be some improvement mm-hmm. uh how they how they came to that i I couldn't recall at the moment, but it's sort of what it does is it it reinforces this idea that biological material coming from from space and introduced into the environment does have this dual effect on human beings. we can have plagues. That follow these introductions that wipe out large parts of the population and are highly negative in some ways and there might also be introductions of other positive uh, or constructive elements into our DNA into our biology and along those lines Carlson mentions uh, a discovery that I thought was fascinating because it's not only biological material that, that gets uh, brought in, but there are also precious metals uh, like palladium, rhodium, ruthenium. And there was a discovery made that I'd like to read, read from his article here because uh, it's just fascinating. What he says is that um, these metals could potentially have a profound effect on the human condition and is hinted at in the work of chemist Thomas J. Mead and molecular biologist John Kayham, whose experiments were described in a May 1995 article in Scientific American. Their area of interest was in the way electrons move through large, complex molecules, such as chlorophyll, which converts the energy of sunlight into plant food through the proton-stimulated movement of electrons. While investigating the complex molecular structure DNA, they inadvertently made a remarkable discovery. I will quote from the Scientific American article. And Carlson quotes They devised a way of binding atoms of ruthenium, that's one of the precious metals, to ribose, one of the backbone components of the helical chains of DNA. Ruthenium atoms act like electrical connectors into and out of the molecule. They have the added virtue of neither disrupting nor distorting its overall shape. Remember, a catalyst causes or accelerates a chemical change without, however, being permanently affected by the reaction. Although there has been a long history of using metals to understand DNA, the ruthenium-ribose combination revealed something extraordinary. The researchers examined the electrical properties of short lengths of double helix DNA in which there was a ruthenium atom at each end of the strands. Mead and Kayyam estimated from earlier studies that a short single strand of DNA ought to conduct up to 100 electrons a second. Imagine their astonishment when they measured the rate of flow along the ruthenium-doped double helix. The current was up by a factor of more than 10,000 times, over a million electrons a second. It was as if the double helix was behaving like a piece of molecular wire. Now, I don't know if ruthenium is a naturally found substance on Earth that wouldn't be. Introduced necessarily by an extraterrestrial rock of some kind, but that it, that there would be some measure of this precious metal that comes from uh, without Earth and and is somehow part of our physiology, at least opens up more questions to me than than would seem to be. Uh, you know, I'm not satisfied with, with with just that connection. What does that
0: mean? You know? Yeah, this uh, what you've just described is you know is just a a game changer. You know, you just radically restructure your worldview because you know you guys are talking about space teeming with with strange life forms and these comets uh, they deliver a payload of biological material. All of these you know amino acids, some that are just alien, completely alien, and you know we don't see any reason why they they should exist they don't you know they don't make a part of our uh, physiology but then you know other aspects of the payload are um, you know these electromagnetic properties that can induce um, radiation and genetic changes and these platinum group uh, materials and not only that but Randall Carlson discusses this these two different ways that these cometary objects, you know, make it into, you know, disturb the the planet. And one of them was by uh, the theoretical um, large, you know, black sun, the twin sun, that uh, moves through the orc uh, cloud and can, you know, bring uh, material with it, a lot of tag-along comets. But then another one was the conveyor belt of Jupiter and Saturn and other planets that will just bring in this material like... You know, it's like the Earth orders takeout, and then, you know, here comes the the delivery man, come and bring it. And it's not just a freak accident, you know, it's not just a a freak occurrence that happens once every 650 million years. But it's something that happens much more frequently. And as he points out in the series, it's, you know, it might be... Um, necessary for life on earth to continue to evolve because you know things wind down and earth maybe mother earth runs out of juice and runs out of material and you get the um, um, the devolution i guess from random mutations you know all the different random mutations that just keep uh, building up building up building up and you end up with with some things that you know some dna changes that work better but then you know you've got but basically because dna is breaking down and you know michael Behe he wrote an entire book on it called darwin devolves and how this process does sometimes induce positive changes so that you know if you are a virus and you have something um, or if you're, you know, a human being and you have something break down and then a virus can't get into, you know, attack your cells because it's broken down, then you, you know, that you'll keep that, but it doesn't create anything new or novel. It just keeps breaking things. Well, maybe nature needs stuff to come in and just, you know, mm-hmm. mix it up and to drop off a payload every now and then. And, uh, you know, if you deny this aspect of, you know, reality of the world we live in and you just deny it at your own peril and it, Time and time again, that seems to happen.
1: I wanted to make a few comments on the nature of those genetic changes, like those mutations. So, Ilan, you mentioned the Tunguska and how um, a situation like that, an event like that, can produce positive or negative changes. And then, Corey, you talked about Behe, and whose main point in that book that he wrote is that pretty much all of the so-called evolutionary changes that we see um, in, in life as we experience it now or in lab settings is actually a loss of function it is a degradation of the existing genes that then produces an effect either removing a a function that um that is no longer adaptive for whatever reason no longer helpful or changing a function in such a way like degrading it so that in this new environment it now has a a positive function um but there's no actual injection of new material. So you don't see the creation of a, a brand new gene that creates a new protein that gives another function. It's all It all takes the existing information and degrades it to such a degree that's, that a change happens that may or may not be beneficial. The organism might die. Or because it's lost that function, it may have a... Um, an advantage now in its environment so for instance if if it's living in, if it's a some kind of bacteria living in a new chemical environment a previous gene that creates um, you know a certain protein at a certain amount might now be harmful in this new environment so that gene might then get broken or you know completely disabled so that the so that it can now without that function that was previously beneficial it can now survive in this new environment so that seems to be the nature of Natural selection, as we know it and as we observe it. So when we look at these changes that happened in the the flora and fauna around Tunguska in response to this um, explosive event, <clears throat> we still don't. The, as far as I know, we don't know enough about the what was actu- what actually happened on the on the molecular level there. So we don't know. Um, well, we don't know exactly what went on there. I'd I'd guess that um, that. It so radically changed the conditions of life in that segment of the planet, that small portion of the planet, that then um, these organisms all had to use their existing adaptive capabilities to then um, change in some change in some manner to then be able to live in this new environment so he he quotes one of the studies where they found that um, for instance, some of the insects were growing or now grew at a remarkable rate, so they grew. Um, either either faster or bigger than they were before. So this seems it's and from our other shows on, and from the books that we've read on this topic, it seems that that's the way that um, that our functions are kind of encoded in our in our genetics is that they're encoded with within certain parameters. So um, so you might have like if you just take something simple like height within the human genetic code, there's the ability there's the the possibility of a range of different heights. You know, you'll have the tallest person and you'll have the shortest person and you won't have anything above or below that. It'll be a range. Most will be in the middle. You know, a standard distribution. But when you... Um, this gets back to Bryant Schiller's book, Fifth Option, that we, I think we briefly discussed in one of our previous shows, how you can look at pretty much any biological trait in that manner and what happens is that when you have radical changes in the environment, you'll have certain, certain segments of all of those probability distributions that get wiped off the map like literally so it may be that the temperature rises and so on, so the the portion of the population that can't survive um above a certain temperature will all die or and, and it can happen on you know any different any given um trait of, of a species so you get this radical reorganization of the species where all of a sudden the 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 probability distribution changes. You still have the, the same, um, the same traits, the same overall traits, but the, the values of those traits have, have changed. So now the, the average might be moved up a bit. So now all the creatures that survive average will now be, they will now have a, a higher, um, a higher toler, toleration, uh, of temperature. They'll be able to, to live in a higher temperature than life, you know, a week ago before this, um, this catastrophic event. So, the so bringing these two ideas together and asking the question: the question needs to be asked. Okay, well, what's going on here? And then, if there is something new that happens, something new that is injected into the genetics of creatures, where is the source of that new information? Because for any given gene, there's a there the, the amount of information that needs to be injected into that is mm-hmm. is tremendous, and the Intelligent design people would argue it has to come from intelligence. There's just no way you can get a random um, process that will result in not only a one new protein, but the collection of structures that need to come all together to produce some new uh, form or or structure or function or species. So the, the so we need to take into account both of these phenomena that um, the the events that seem to be associated with these dramatic changes that seem to be catastrophic in nature in human history, where, or just in life history, where things are going pretty, pretty normal and stable for millions of years, perhaps, and then there's some big event, some mass extinction, where all of a sudden, lots, many of the species previously alive on the planet die, and then all of these new forms suddenly appear so we have to look at the cause of that the conditions that are created by that event and then the source of the new information that gets injected now the when when you read in books by intelligent design proponents or listen to their talks they they often respond to <clears throat> um alternative ideas of course you know darwinism but then then they also respond to the idea of they often phrase it in a in a kind of pejorative way of like aliens it's like oh so there are people that say that the that that life must have started from aliens it must have been you know some other intelligent life that then created life on earth and they never actually give that idea much um like they never deal with it in depth it, it it's usually just a, a couple sentences or a paragraph that they use to write it off, and they have a good reason for writing it off in their context, because they say, well, that doesn't explain the origin of the life form that then created life on earth. Okay, that's valid. So they're looking for the ultimate root cause of life anywhere, not specifically on earth. Now, so I I can totally see why they do that. What I don't like about that is that it doesn't answer how life specifically started on earth. Because it may be, if not aliens, it may be that there might be some kind of um, directed panspermia event. It may be that, you know, microorganisms came from somewhere. And of course, yes, that doesn't explain where they originally came from, but it might have relevance for us, you know, for what actually happened. So I think um, hopefully, you know, one day there will be an intelligent design person. If they're, If they already exist, I don't know of them. So, you know, if someone knows them, you know, Give us a comment and let us know who looks at all of these things kind of equally and takes them all on board and actually deals with them in depth. So far, like I said, I haven't seen anyone that actually does that. Because it may be that whatever the ultimate source of life, that a whole combination of different factors, you know, contribute not only to, maybe not only to our life, the, the life that emerged on Earth, but on other planets too. The directed panspermia might be an integral part in the whole process, It may not be the ultimate source of, or the ultimate explanation that takes into account uh, everything involved, but it may be an important part of the picture, Um, and it seems that it probably isn't an important part of the picture, given the kind of stuff that uh, Randall Carlson and, you know, Chandra uh, Rikmanisi-Singhi talk about um, and bring up. Like, just the the fact that there's all this material just floating around in space, carried on comets and meteors, Um, there's asteroids, there's a lot that needs to be taken into account. But then, if we want to now go to that bigger picture, you know, what is the ultimate source of life? That's uh, that's a it's a big question, and of course, it's one that Darwinists don't like because um, when it comes to when it comes to that question, to be honest, the religious people have a better explanation for it. It may not be satisfying to a lot of people that are either anti-religious or not religious or not associated with any religion or strictly atheist, like, it's not a satisfying answer to to hear, oh, well, it's God did it. You know, it's not a satisfying scientific answer because it's still, it seems like a cop-out, right, to just write it off as, oh, God did it, because so much stuff has been written off, um, you know, in, in the history of human thought and inquiry as just being God until, Scientists and people actually discovered what was actually going on—the the the hidden elements and the intricacies of either chemical processes or um, the you know celestial mechanics or whatever. There's all kinds of mathematics and things that that have been discovered that were just previously simply written off as oh well, that was just God. Um, mm-hmm. So, but like I said, the they really do have a better answer because at least it gives a plausible explanation for it. It may not be totally correct, but at least it accounts for the injection of new information. You need a mind to create information. That's what minds do. Um, But just like like directed panspermia or aliens creating life might not be the entire answer explaining everything, same thing with the God explanation. It may be true to some degree, however we come to understand it, but... There are probably, there's probably a whole lot more we don't understand, right. and it's a lot more complex than the, the typical kind of creationist or even the typical intelligent design person would get into. Because intelligent design guys, if you'll notice, if you read their stuff and listen to them, they, they don't get into it a lot. Um, they want to stick strictly to the science. They say, okay, this means there must be an intelligence. I'm not going to speculate on the nature of this intelligence or how it all gets done. I'm just going to leave it there they might say i personally am or am not a christian and believe it was god but that's irrelevant for the science the science just implies an intelligence it could be aliens for all we know so that's where they leave it and you know i understand it. it's it's a it's their kind of it it is to me i think that's the right way to approach it for their purposes but i'm interested in more than just their purposes i want to know what actually happened right mm-hmm. yeah you can't right blame a a hardcore
0: scientist uh, to want to stick to just the work of science and you know leave the speculation to other people but it does seem more and more with each passing year that uh... all of the these brilliant minds out there are um... you know it's it's hard to find better scientific proof of higher intelligence than the genetic code you know it's you and i mean because that's what it is it's a code you know just like we have uh codes that run our our cell phones and all the apps and and our computers our lives our cars and you know if soon if elon musk has his way they'll be running our brains you know and if bill gates has his way we'll all be chipped with them and uh linked up to the hive mind but the, uh, this it's the same thing. It's it's a code um, that is so unfathomably uh, complex, and you know, as and it can be scientifically demonstrated um, that it would require an intelligence to create this code because the probability of this code existing and multiplying and you know, existing for 4 billion years. I mean, can you imagine an appliance that you have and you think your car is going to last 4 billion years? You know, mm-hmm. but there's this um, this code that somehow has survived all that the universe can throw at it, quite literally, and continues to survive and is seems to be designed to survive, mm-hmm. simply to survive whatever extremes will exist on this planet. And apparently, even on comets... I mean, it, it really makes you wonder what the heck is going on out there that there's just these, um, these celestial bodies that it, one of their primary uh, functions, I guess you could say, is to just cook and breed uh, genetic material and metals and then just come in within a big, huge, crazy, awe-inspiring, terrifying display, um, deliver it onto a planet Um, it's, you know, it's just, it, it boggles the mind, the, uh, the amount of complexity there, but like, like I said, you know, you can't blame these scientists for Mm -hmm. not wanting to speculate about it, but you know. We can. We, we can we can have a lot of fun with it because you can say i mean until you find in the code uh you know into in this genetic code that says like hey my name's john i was you know yeah. i'm an alien and i created this one right here you know what i mean if you find these little commented lines little patents or something until you find that it's you know it's sheer speculation what kind of alien species if if there was i mean you know it's uh because when i think another big aspect of the intelligent design is um, this philosophical desire to understand mm. in the abstract way through just sheer logic and reason and science. You know those things combined. Those are um, human functions of our of our psychology that uh, that you know that don't work well with sheer speculation. You know, like it's you know it's the seeing is believing thing. You know, as soon mm-hmm. as you see this line of code that says my name's John and I'm an alien until you get to that point mm-hmm. you're like well yeah yeah it's it's this too complex there's mm-hmm. too much potential what alien race what what level of alien like it's it's still around how are you going to find out what alien race created uh life uh, four billion years ago you know it, but then you have to start wondering like well is there a higher intelligence than that that could create an alien race and then alien races perhaps that is mm-hmm. one of their jobs in the cosmos is they they just have fun there's different kinds of races maybe that create different kinds of life forms and the, there's a higher intelligence to, uh, mm-hmm. above their intelligence that you know maybe i have no clue i'm just mm-hmm. throwing out things that yeah. because it's fun to speculate yeah. about this kind of this kind of stuff because why not have fun it's fun yeah. it's absolutely astonishing you know if if people are reading this and they're not astonished mm-hmm. and like their minds aren't blown it's like you know, this is what it means, I think, to be, you know, a, a child again, you know, childlike in heart, to, to look at the cosmos, look at the complexity, and to appreciate it for the sheer marvel um, that it is, uh, warts and all, I guess.
2: Well, well, that's where pseudoscience and authoritarianism comes into play in, in this whole area, because uh, y- you can imagine that there are some Darwinists and scientists who've been trained a certain way to, to think on all this in a certain way. And uh, when they do come across ideas that would support the uh, the, the probability for intelligent design, uh, you can imagine them sort of saying, well, my professor didn't talk about that, and that's not part of the orthodoxy, and if I go there, I'm going to lose my job. So, for goodness sake you know, random mutation created us and, and I'm not going there because only creationists go there and I'm not a Bible-thumping creationist. But I, I did want to get back to something earlier that, uh, that you said, Corey, about, about code. Um, and because it reminded me of our discussion of a couple of weeks ago and how Randall Carson's, uh, Carlson's um, exploration into the... Uh, the grail legend and into the Arthurian uh, mythology and, and narratives and stories are this code uh, or are elements of reality and truth encoded in uh, these, these stories. Um, one of the, one of the stories we discussed was the story of Percival and how, when he's, Brought into this castle by the Fisher King is introduced uh, to this procession of four or five different elements. The, and I think you went through this, Harrison, but I'd like to review it again because uh, it, it so made a compelling case for me as to, as to how this story is a, is a story of cyclical catastrophe encoded that uh, it deserves to be looked at. And I think that there's a a conclusion to it that at least makes sense in my mind. So a brief review, Percival goes into this castle. He's a a newly made knight, part of of Arthur's uh, round circle. He has a mentor. The mentor takes him to this region where the Fisher King boats him over into this castle where Percival goes inside and, and is shown these, these several elements. He's shown uh, candlesticks. He's shown a, a lance with blood dripping from it. He's shown a, a blinding kind of plate uh, of, that's emanating light. He's shown another chalice or object that's got uh, gems and stones on it. And Carlson makes a very good argument for how these can be seen as representative of different stages in which a near-Earth object would be seen and viewed and understood um, by people who had seen real comets and asteroids enter the atmosphere and, and what they look like in their various stages. So after Percival notices all these things... Uh he's he he leaves the castle and the Fisher King who has this wound in his thighs, this Anfratus wound it's called, is is still injured. And Percival is approached on a couple of occasions, continuing on his journey, and people are saying to him, Why didn't you ask what these objects meant? You could have healed the king, you could have restored the, the blighted lands that, that we've seen. And so Percival, in not asking the question, in basically ignoring this information, is now back on the quest for five years to find the grail, which is no longer in the castle, which had imploded on itself, if I remember the story correctly. So one of the main points of this story would seem to be Don't neglect to ask the question, because in asking the question, what is it that I'm being shown here? What what is the significance of these symbols? What is the deeper meaning that's spoken to us in the language of the birds, the green language, the angelic language, the the language of coded information that, that has been gifted to us through this series of stories? we're not receiving the gift we're not we're not looking at what may be very pertinent questions that a lot of scientists are asking in their discussions and and their researches of of transpermia of commentary bombardment and catastrophe of its effects on biology its effects on life on earth and i think that these are these are pretty central questions that that we could and should be asking at this time mm-hmm.
1: just on the subject of that story of the Percival story, just as an aside, I've been reading a translation of the original um by Chrétien de Troy um on his Percival translated by Nigel Bryant. It just just came out like five years ago or something and i just, if any if anyone's interested, I recommend it it's really entertaining it's a it's a fun story. And um, easy to read, actually, you know, so it's not like a lot of those um, when you read a lot of classics, you know hundreds of years old, oftentimes the language, the translation can be really dry and not really entertaining, but this is really uh, it skips along. And on the subject of the of him not a- not asking the question, there's an interesting theme that runs through Percival's story in the in the original romance. And that is, he starts out as a real a real dumb kid. You know, he's he's naive and pretty stupid, and he's kind of like the the everyman of um, just, the, just the dumb human that doesn't really understand anything, makes the wrong choices, doesn't really listen to what's being told to him, doesn't see the significance of events, um, does some pretty mean things or just ignorant things and in the what beginning. A, what a
2: better metaphor for humanity. Uh-huh. And, then that. Yeah. Here, so, ahead,
1: and, and so the reason that he didn't ask the question at the, at the procession was that he'd been told by his mentor right. not, to, not to speak, basically be silent, because the, the mentor can kind of see that he says dumb things. Um, he often gives information that isn't needed for, he, he, he tells people, oh I learned this from my mom, and he says don't do that, you know, people won't have a good opinion of you, so just d- don't speak there's a there's a value in silence essentially so he takes that extremely literally and he doesn't say anything so when he gets to this castle um for the first time and he, he meets this beautiful lady he just sits there and doesn't say anything and she's just like okay this is kind of strange so she doesn't say anything and finally she talks to him and he's, he gives a really nice answer but in that situation he wants to ask he's like oh i, I really want to know what that what that lance is, why it's bleeding and, and who the grail is going to, cause it's feeding someone. They're bringing it to, to give to someone. And he doesn't, he doesn't answer the question, doesn't ask the question because he's listening to the advice given to him and, um, and taking it in kind of a wrong way. And this happened before too. So that the first instance of someone teaching him was of course his mother who had taught him certain things. And so he listens to her. Some, sometimes he listens to her. Sometimes he doesn't, but he'll, Um, so that, that causes a few, Problems for him down the line too. He gains some car- karma for following her advice in ways that he probably shouldn't. But it seems that one of the themes of that story is that there's a not only is there good advice to be had from other people and to to listen to the advice given to you, but also that there's a danger in in following the advice that's given to you. That it's not it's not your own. It's kind of like in our discussion of Paul. It's the the law versus the spirit. it's the external source of rules that tells you what to do um, but you haven't internalized it for yourself. It's not coming from you. it's coming from the people that have told you them. So at, at the at, in this early stage of Percival's career, um, it's it's his mom that's determining his actions to begin with. then it's his mentor who's determining his actions. He hasn't found himself yet. He hasn't um, he hasn't internalized any of these values for himself and as in his journey as a knight, that is what uh seemingly what he's going towards is to to internalize these things for himself because the this romance was apparently one of uh um Detroit's or it was his last. The first had dealt with like chivalry and and he dealt with other topics, but this was his spiritual romance. So there was a spiritual dimension to it. But uh just that's just an aside. Getting back to evolution and comets and all that, there's a few different angles I want to take this. And the first is just to, um, to introduce a new, a new angle that we haven't talked about in our previous discussions of intelligent design. Because I hadn't, you know, wasn't familiar with it at the time. Um, after our show with Joseph Azizi, um, or during that show, in the last couple of questions, he mentioned John Bennett, student of Gurdjieff. And so I, uh, I, I was reading his last book um, called Masters of Wisdom. Which he never finished. He he died um, while writing one of the final chapters. But in that first chapter, he gives like I I didn't I hadn't known beforehand that Bennett was so into this kind of stuff. So this first chapter is all about what we would now call like intelligent design and what really is evolution. He's very anti-Darwinian, or anti-Darwinian, um, thankfully, <laughs> and um, but he brings in all of these other ideas. Well, first of all, just his. His picture of, or the way he sees life is very interesting. He he points to four aspects of life that for him are kind of remarkable. And the first is the progress that you see in life. The progression from simple to complex and from uh, relatively unintelligent to intelligent and to the to the intelligence that we see in humanity. And so he sees in that progress the sign of what he calls intelligent experiment uh ex- intelligent experimentation to discover the most suitable forms of life that's what when you look at life impartially that's what it appears to be that that, that it's almost like an experiment um a, a billion year experiment to find the the most suitable forms and that they progress in in their in all kinds of qualities the second one was life's interdependence and how this is just the in, the level of inter- interdependence of like the biosphere is just is staggeringly complex that you take one thing out and the whole thing falls to pieces you put one new thing in and you could destroy the whole system it's at the uh, on the one hand it's very robust and on the other hand it's very fragile um, be- because of these interconnections that that you know the level of which we can't even comprehend we can understand certain parts of it but it's this it's this one system that's this one whole that Again, seems that level of complexity seems to, to point to an intelligence that has um, that sustains it, that I, that has created and, and maintains it. Um, and then the third is beauty. This you don't find in the scientists, or you very you very rarely find in, find this in the scientists talking about it. Just about the the beauty in life, and that for Bennett, that was that is one of the purposes of life. That it's not strictly functional, it's not strictly strictly practical. There is a an aesthetic sense to life that injects beauty into it. One of the purposes of life is the beauty inherent in life. And then the fourth is again, one that this one, everyone ignores because you do find some intelligent design people talking about the beauty in life and that, that as the sign of a, of a creator of an intelligence. Um, the fourth though is play. He says that for Bennett, there's a, an element of play in the universe and in, in this progression and in this beauty. He says that you, and the absurdity of it. You see some creatures that are just absurdly strange and and funny, humorous. Like you, if you look at some aspects of life, they're just pretty damn hilarious, um, like like the platypus. And, and well, if, who's, who's the guy? There's a guy on YouTube. Um, The The Murder Hornet. Z Frank, I think, is his YouTube channel. Z Z Z E Frank. And he's the guy that does those um, those kind of fake, almost John Attenborough type explanations of creatures and like insects and animals and mammals and he finds all the just funny weird things that they do and, and in his professional voice talks about them really seriously, but it's just completely ludicrous. So if you want an idea of the the playfulness of uh, of life, then check out Z. Frank's um, videos. But Bennett's idea <clears throat> is that there is, because he's a Gurdjieffian, first of all, there is such a distance between humanity and God, the the absolute, the w- whatever that is, whatever God is, whatever the totality is, the one, whatever. There's such a uh, an immense chasm between us at our level and that level that, well, what's in all that space? We've talked about this on the show before. Bennett thinks that or thought that there are levels between the ultimate and humanity and so he saw the direction uh, the and the experimentation of life as a, at a level in between above humanity but below the absolute and he called this the demiurge not with any reference to the the Gnostics who saw like this um, the creation and the, the physical world as the creation of this um, this demiurge this this kind of um, Almost almost godly figure in opposition to God himself but Demiurge more in the just in the original definition of the term which uh, you know which I forget now I think it' just means um, it's something to do with um, like w- with working and like working with your hands um, like a helper a working helper or something like that and so he sees the demiurge as the the level of intelligence lower than the absolute that it's basically their role their job. To create life and to to experiment with it, to come up with these new forms, to with the with a purpose though, all leading towards something. That's why you see this progression in life. is It's because it's a purpose with an end in, or it's an experiment with an end in mind. Well, how do we come to some certain goal? Um, you can see it as on one level. If you look at the at all of the the life on Earth for billions of years before there were um, humans, then you could see humanity as kind of. Or, or or a type of humanity, a type of intelligence as one of the goals to which all of that life is was purposefully striving um, as kind of one of the endpoints of that experiment or one of the the hoped for results of that experiment is to 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 achieve that level. Um, but that there is this the, the main point being that there are these kind of individualized or maybe collective intelligences that are above the level of humanity but not at the, at the level of, like, the creationists or um, the intelligent design people would say, God, you know, oh, God did it. God did all this. Well, no, there's, the, the picture might be more complex than that, as we were saying. And this leads me to... I want to come back to our show last week to read um, something from Rumi. Um, first of all, I'll read a quote, and then a quote from one of Rumi's poems and then a couple, a bits from, uh, from Chittick himself. This is again from the Sufi doctrine of Rumi by, Williams, by William C. Chittick. So first of all, here's Rumi's poem. He writes, Externally, the branch is the origin of the fruit. Intrinsically, the branch came into existence for the sake of the fruit. If there had not been desire and hope of the fruit... How should the gardener have planted the root of the tree? Therefore, in reality, the tree was born of the fruit, even if in appearance it, the fruit, was generated by the tree. Hence Mustafa, Muhammad, said, Adam and the other prophets are following behind me under my banner. For this reason, that master of all sorts of knowledge, Muhammad, has uttered the allegorical saying, We are the last and the foremost. That is to say, if in appearance I am born of Adam, in reality I am the forefather of every forefather. Therefore, in reality, the father Adam was born of me. Therefore, in reality, the tree was born of the fruit. The thought, idea, which is first, comes last into actuality. In particular, the thought that is eternal. This relates to a quote from... um, Three, let's see, a poem by Ali. I'll just read the last bit of it. Thou takest thyself to be a small body, but within thee unfolds the macrocosm, and thou art the evident book, through whose letters the hidden becomes manifest. So there's, there's of course, a, a spiritual and a mystical meaning to that, but um, it's also it seems relevant or a way of, uh, a way of reading something into that is well literally whose letters are hidden um, through whose letters the hidden becomes manifest what letters well through our physical forms ourselves our, through our form itself the the idea manifests that the that life itself and on a larger scale the physical world is the the book of the evident book of the cosmos the book of the word of the the grand cosmic mind the the greatest intelligence, um, the source of all consciousness and being. And so, if that was kind of obscure, then here's, I'll I'll read Chittick's kind of explanation of all this. So he's talking about this this idea in Sufism of the universal man, um, who embodies kind of divine qualities. So he writes, universal man has another aspect when seen from the point of view of the spiritual path. He is the perfect human model who has attained all the possibilities inherent in the human state in him, the names or essences, which man contains in potentiality are actualized so that they become the very states of his being for him, the human ego with, with which most men identify themselves, identify themselves is no more than his outer shell while all the other states of existence belong to him internally. His inward reality is identified with the inward reality of the whole universe. Universal man is the principle of all manifestation and thus the prototype of the microcosm and the macrocosm. An individual man, or man as we usually understand the term, is the most complete and central reflection of the reality of universal man in the manifested universe. And thus he appears as the final being to enter the arena of creation. For that is for what is first in principle order is last in the manifested order. So if I were to give my picture at the current time of how this all fits together, it's that at a, to, to kind of bring all these threads together is that at a level above humanity, there's this, what the Sufis might call the universal man, or like, almost like a cosmic template of, of, uh, of life, of a, of a life form of a of an actualized being you know the the kind of epitome of what life could be and that that's first the idea is first in any creation the the idea comes first before it is actualized when you you know write a piece of music it comes first through through inspiration through whatever in your mind before it becomes actualized in the world in the playing of the piece of music or you know in the, the creation of a of a building the architectural scheme you have to think it first before it comes so that's so, in principle order, the first thing is the thought. The first, the first thing is the ideal. But, the, but that is the last to show up in, in the, the natural progression of things. So, the, the last thing to show up is the, is the final form that you have envision, envisioned. Until you get to that point, you have to go through all the intermediate stages, all the intermediate steps to get there. You have to build up to that ideal in actualization. But it comes first. So... To to go on your idea about Corey about these levels of intelligence, it's like um, there is it seems to be the, the the way that would make sense to me is that on some level there is kind of a um, a level of existence or creation where where this i this kind of spiritual ethereal like ideal exists, and the the way it's manifested in the the way in the way it manifests in the world. Um, for whatever reason can only come about through this progression from this from the very simple to the more complex so the way it plays out in the physical universe is this billions of years long process where you have the just the raw material of that formed the stars and the planets and the and and space and all and all of the all the the gases and metals and everything from from the origin of the universe then now on this level you have now planets, you have solar systems, but there's no life on them. Next is the, the the planet has to be prepared. So at a certain level or a certain stage in the planet's development, it's okay. Now it is um, habitable. It's hospitable. It's a hospitable environment for the the creation of life. Whatever those conditions are, um, they they need to be present because a, a planet can be just like a you know an endless roiling volcanic mass of something or it can be just a totally sterile dead rock there needs to be something about that planet that um that allows for allows for the emergence of life and so whatever those like i said whatever those conditions are now what do you need you need building blocks so this is where the comets come in this is where the, uh, the you know the space and the the transfer of materials comes to this planet now if those are present you need not only do you need the right environment you re- need the right conditions so and the raw materials so whatever happens all these now you've got these materials now there's something that now it's like here's the window of opportunity we've got everything we need what is that window of opportunity well maybe it has something to do with the ener- energetic um um like the extremely the extreme energetic event of a of a cometary explosion you know the the em um f- the em like bursts and just that that environment. Maybe there's something that some kind of um, specific state that has to be achieved for then to, to create this opening for this intelligence to then work on that material. So because now you have this, now you've got the raw materials and you've got this state. Maybe maybe it's electro- electromagnetic in nature. Coming back to well, um, jumping ahead a bit. Maybe this the the platinum group metals. In later life, there is a similar thing happening when the when these metals get injected and can have an effect on, like, ba- basically turning the body into a superconductor. That then that creates that heightened state where action is now possible on some kind of like creating level or some kind of creative um, evolutionary level. But back to this origin of life, you've got the materials, you've got the event, you've got the context, the the, the environment, and now f- to an outside observer looking at this. You just see this. It, w- it would look like um, like matter out of nothing, like creation out of nothing. That just uh, a self assembling form coming into shape. All the materials are being basically intelligently guided to assume the form of that first organism. You've got all the building all the building blocks, but they need to be put together. And so they kind of to that external observer, it would look like they just take form and a cell shapes. Now you've got your first life, and this something like this may repeat many times throughout history. Where you have the you, you need the con, you need the correct conditions, the cre- the correct materials, um, the the correct timing um, when when everything comes together that allows for that intelligence to then act on that event because it doesn't look like that that type of um, kind of like intervention from above from a higher intelligent. It, from a higher intelligence, it doesn't look like it's constantly going on. We don't constantly see new species coming about. We don't constantly see extinctions and radical um, restructurings of life on the planet that seems to only come at certain times um, associated with cometary bombardments. in the times in between things just are are pretty static pretty st- the, p- things are just kind of like hum along ordinarily you don't see anything really out of the ordinary happening that's why we get long stretches of just the same species doing their thing and nothing really new coming out of it so then um, something similar maybe happens to to where we get the emergence of human life but all of these things are are in the image of that perfection it's like it's like you have a this uh, this perfect form this perfect genetic being who then this is a this is kind of, uh, um, symbolic or metaphorical takes pieces of himself to create life. It's like, okay, here's, I'm this perfect being. I'm all of the possible, I am all the possible beings, you know, in my genetic structure, in my physical form. And then all of those get expressed in life as we see it on the planet with the goal of then coming to that perfection, um, of coming back to that perfection, so that's why the the first is last. The first shows up last because it's the last to to be manifested in this, you know, experimental stew of of life on well for us on planet Earth. Um and this gets back to the criticism of intellig- that the intelligent design people have of aliens because this type of intelligence would be alien to to humanity i mean that's it's not what we think of it's not what people think of when they think of aliens people have a very definite image of what they think aliens are like but this type of intelligence could be called alien because it's not part of our ordinary experience but th- this higher intelligence um for what the intelligent design people would say would well who created that who created that intelligence well it's kind of like a non-physical thing it's it's um and it uh, and well ultimately it comes back to, to their idea like if we're going with the Sufis ultimately all things come back to to God to the absolute and that uh, so that would be that ideal form would be the creation perhaps of a higher mind but then it's that it's now that being's responsibility to um, get life started and bring it up to its own point um, at least that's the way I see it now but one other idea I wanted to to bring in is that You'd mentioned in one of your comments, Corey. You'd said something about the about higher and lower, higher and lower intelligences. Well, when we're working on something, when we're creating something, now this is an idea that, for me, has resonances with what Gurdjieff talked about. One of Gurdjieff's ideas about the higher working on the lower to actualize the middle. That you have a so whenever you're doing something, you're a higher intelligence working on something objectively lower in the scale of creation. To create something new, and you can see this in anything. Whether it's you, 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 your higher intelligence working on raw food to create a meal. Well, the meal is higher than the the raw food because you can't eat the raw food as it is, or if you do, you'll get indigestion. Um, or it could be uh, you see this in education. You have the the more you have the the person with wisdom who's then instructing the person without wisdom with the goal that they that what will be actualized is that person on a higher level a new them that is greater than what they were before so if this is this seems to be a kind of a law of the of the universe and if it's true then it would seem that for for the actualization of life on earth you need a higher intelligence working on a lower material or a lower intelligence to actualize something greater than the original one but or greater than the material but but still lower than the the um the originator of the idea and you have that constantly going on and that's where you get the the progression it's this constant activity of the higher on the lower to create something a bit higher and then which constantly rises up and climbs kind of this ladder of creation um that's at least how i see it at this moment <laughs> which may change tomorrow
2: Wow. Well, you, you said a bunch of things there and we're coming on to the end of the show here. Uh, just a couple of quick thoughts is what if, if there was a designer, if there is something above us that has helped to uh, in, inform what we are physically, mentally, biologically, who's to say that cyclical catastrophe in the form of Near Earth objects isn't also a part of the design of the universe in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, this is kind of difficult to reconcile if you consider the potential for large amounts of suffering in the form of plague that usually comes after uh, some cometary bombardments. But, like you were saying, Harrison, I mean, there's this. There's also the introduction for the potential of all of these positive elements so if if that's the case then maybe by sheer dint of of understanding uh this even greater perspective of intelligent design not only on a on this uh micro scale of human beings and nature and animals and what have you but also on this grander more cosmic level and something to something to at least try and get our head around and uh, and ponder, and um, I'm looking forward to looking at those questions in future shows
1: mm-hmm. Well, uh, maybe as a final a final thought before we shut down for the week on what you just said from the sufis the the faces of God are both beautiful and terrible, right those are both aspects of of creation so Uh, With that in mind, take care, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.